Hey everyone, so we are here. It is a Friday afternoon. I am here with Evan Karnapakis, who, um, for those of you that don't know him, he is huge in blockchain. He um, is one of the few experts that we can really call on to not just explain what blockchain is and all the different intricacies around it, but um, can really explain kind of what's going on here because I know not just from a lot of you that have reached out, but just in general, there's been a lot of um, commotion and people not necessarily understanding what's going on in the crypto world. We're seeing a lot of um, a lot of different coins really feel the brunt. Even Bitcoin has really felt some impact. You're seeing it with companies all over. So I um, wanted to bring Evan in here, kind of just to dissect his you know, career and what, what he's really done. And also we have an open discussion about what crypto is, what blockchain is and what's going on. So Evan, without further ado, thank you for coming on here. You're welcome, Carter. Happy to be here today. Awesome. Awesome. So Evan, um, for those of you, for those, uh, well, for the audience that doesn't uh, necessarily isn't as familiar um, with you as myself, um, <laughs> who are you? What, what, what's your uh, claim to fame here? Well, within the uh, world of blockchain, uh, I'm a blockchain uh, author, educator, consultant, thought leader, founder, and also board member of uh, Avocado Technologies, which I'm proud to say. Uh, but I you know, got involved in this space uh, starting back in 2016. Uh, one of my longtime friends, uh, his name is John Hargrave, uh, he had written a book called Mind Hacking, and I worked as his gamification consultant for that. And uh, around the time that he finished it, um, just a little background, John had gotten into Bitcoin back in uh, 2013 and was you know, very excited about how it was going. He had built a successful search engine optimization company called Media Shower. And he was making the decision to do a strategic pivot into blockchain. And one of the first uh, reports he wrote was about XRP or Ripple. And he sent it to me and I provided him with some feedback. And then he really encouraged me to kind of take this, you know, dive with him into this space. Uh, he had read uh, Ray Dalio's um, book, Principles, and uh, had me read it. And he was really interested in building something like that, but in blockchain. So um, around 2017, then I started transitioning uh, into blockchain full-time. And then around 2018, uh, you know, that became my, my full-time focus. And uh, like with any emerging technology the great thing is uh there are no gatekeepers you just simply yeah. see an opportunity and you do it i mean no one no one had a you know an undergraduate major or master's degree in, in blockchain you just um see something you want to do and then you can you can come in and make an impact and i can tell you uh i've had uh, more fun uh met more interesting people um in the last you know four four and a half years uh, than i have probably at any other time in my career. And I know there's definitely some uh, concerns right now in the industry. As we, we said uh, several years ago um, in our report, 2019 report um, called State of Blockchain for O'Reilly Media, uh, Bitcoin is still the bellwether for the entire blockchain industry. Uh, that was true then and it's, it's still true today. Um, but you know, long term, I'm still uh, very excited about this space and 
I'm very optimistic about the future. Yeah. So like when you draw back on your experiences, like what necessarily really wanted you to get into blockchain? Because you met John and whatnot, but it was kind of that moment where you said, yeah, this is what I want to dive headfirst into because you've had a lot of experiences in your background. So like, this is kind of like a unique pivot for someone to really jump into something that, you know, at the time when you did, it was fairly unproven and, you know, a lot smaller than it is now. So it's like a big leap there. Yeah. Well, uh, I'd split my career pretty evenly between uh, business technology and education. And when John encouraged me to look into this space, uh, I started learning about the technology and its potential for industry disruption. I quickly realized that many of the industries um, which blockchain was predicted to or was already starting to disrupt were industries in which I had worked uh, as a consultant um, in my previous career. I started off with Accenture uh, out of college. Uh, after I my MBA at Wharton, I worked in the collectibles industry. Uh, also did work in you know, industries like government, uh, education, uh, transportation, logistics, financial services, banking. And these were all industries that were you know, being disrupted. So the first um, major publication that I had uh, was an article for Bitcoin Market Journal titled Top 20 Industries Blockchain Will Disrupt. And you know that I was really able to draw upon uh, my diverse background and kind of bring certain insights uh, that you only get from working in those industries. Uh, and that's where I was kind of first able to um, make an initial impact. And then from there, uh, the second article that I wrote um, uh, was about crypto market making. And there was a lot of interest in uh, looking for market makers in the crypto space, but there was very little information out there. So I wrote an article ranking crypto market makers. And within about a week, it became the number one ranked article on Google. And I suddenly found myself, after only being in this space a short time, you know, basically one of the, the foremost internationally recognized thought leaders on market making. And I had yeah. people from London and Brussels and Hong Kong and Singapore uh, all reaching out to me you know, with, with questions, asking me to evaluate their companies, add them to list. And that's one of, again, the great things about blockchain technology and any emerging technology. You see an opportunity, you go for it. No one's going to say, well, you didn't work for McKinsey for 10 years or Goldman Sachs or you know, Procter & Gamble or you know, whatever you know, industry leader. Uh, you're really anyone from you know, teenagers like Vitalik Buterin to seasoned veterans with like 30, 40 years in this industry. Everyone can make an impact. You just simply yeah. seize that opportunity and look for a way to add value. It's one of those different types of industries too. Like you talk about like the traditional financial space, like if you work at Goldman Sachs, like there's like a, a trajectory that every single person goes on. Like you have to go from one point to another point to another point. And that's, that's kind of the difference between that and then blockchain and also like the new economy that we're heading into with FinTech is like, mm -hmm. you can kind of figure out your best way to make your impact. That's what we've, you know, really been, you know, experiencing, you know, with different, you know, various projects going on. And so, um, how how has blockchain really changed since you got in? Because it feels today like there's so many more avenues, so many more opportunities. Um, kind of hard to like cipher out which you know ones are the, kind of the better paths to go down. Mm -hmm. Because there's so much more. Before it was really Bitcoin was the standard. Everyone knew Bitcoin. 
Um, and now there's so many other things. So like, how has it really changed since you've gotten yeah. in? Well, you know, one of the um, parts of my background that I'm able to draw upon, it was also one of my motivations for, for going into the space, was that uh, I lived through the dot-com the dot com boom in the late 90s. Unfortunately, I was in business school at the time, and I completely missed it. You know, I'd taken, yeah. I've always been someone who was averse to debt, so uh, all the money I'd saved consulting, I, I put it towards my um, my MBA education. And while I was in school, you know, I was uh, entering business plan competitions and winning nice little you know trophies and certificates. While people were coming up with these you know internet ideas on cocktail napkins and getting you know millions of dollars of venture capital thrown out, so I couldn't wait to you know get out into that world. And as soon as I got out, the, the economy collapsed. And I swore I would never, you know, miss another opportunity like that. So, you know, I started to see this, you know, coming along again in, in 2017. Uh, but again, my, just as, you know, I'd stayed away from the original dot-com because I just, I didn't see any value there. You know, I yeah. saw just a lot of ideas, but no real sustainable competitive advantages, real value propositions. And I saw a lot of the same things happening within um, the ICOs, you know, the ICO boom that happened and people weren't, they weren't really investing in companies. They were just getting, you know, a piece of a network. And so, you know, I was, I was glad to stay away from that. And then once that ended in crypto winter began in 2018, that's when I really felt comfortable coming into the space. Uh, what I've seen since then, um, I'll say like what hasn't changed and what has changed. What hasn't changed is that it's still an extremely accessible industry. Um, when we wrote, um, started writing the book, uh, Blockchain Success Stories, which was a collection of 10 case studies, you know, we were able to gain access to you know, industry leaders and really you know, interview them, get to yeah. know them, and you know, tell their stories um, and really share that. And whereas before, you know, the blockchain industry was a lot of theory a lot of white papers, a lot of proofs of concepts, some um, you know, minimum viable products, but really everything was too early stage to truly call success stories. Now we can actually see real implementations of this technology in ways that really truly adds value uh, through simplification and cost reduction, disintermediation, um, balancing privacy and transparency, fulfilling real needs, you know, in the marketplace. And we're also starting to see, you know, more of the resources available in terms of not only the, the financial, but also the human capital as more and more people are, are learning, you know, how to develop this space. Um, but like any evolving industry, there's always new applications, new technologies, and, you know, they need time to shake out with any new industry, any new technology. There are always uh, what you would call, you know, malactors or yeah. people from the the uh, informal aspects of uh, our economy, you know, jumping into the space. Uh, so there always has to be a certain amount of caution involved, and yet the people who do adopt early and experiment with it, they're the ones who are you know, best positioned long term. So, you know, we've seen this evolving now with, uh, you know, we had ICOs, then we had, had NFTs, there was a tremendous boom, tremendous interest. You had your, your, your Doge coins, you had all yeah. these, you know, whatever the latest fad was that, you know, goes through a hype cycle and then it goes to that 
you know, diffusion curve and then bottoms out and then slowly starts to come back. And what I've seen right now, you know, with, with a lot of concern, we saw, you know, Bitcoin go from 20,000, you know, at the end of 2017 down to 3,000. And then it took three years to get back up. And there were cycles before that where, you know, it was typically losing 88 to 85% of its value. And, you know, now it's down, you know, from a high of, you know, close to 70,000 down to around 20,000. And because of that, a lot of people are predicting that you were going to see it fall even further, you know, down to around 10, you know, maybe even yeah. eight. But, you know, and, and historically, there is evidence both for that and also counter to that. I would say, you know, the information that what I look at is I remember when the economy collapsed and it really eliminated a lot of these projects that had no real value. I mean, yeah. the idea was, well, if they just got their volume up, no, they were losing money on every transaction that wasn't going to make a difference. They were never viable to begin with. But the companies that survived through that, you know, that are the, the, the companies you hear about today, the Amazons, the Googles, many of them still lost 85, 90% of their value, but they didn't lose 99.9%. You know, they, they still had they a business it behind it. They still yeah. had an actual application practical exactly. use behind it and those ones you know those are the ones that came through so you know you look at a you know a company like a, a coinbase and, you know and they were way off you know their high from when they reached and then you know a few weeks ago they were maybe at about like 30 percent of their peak and it was considered a great price well then it lost half of its value again and that was considered again another you know great opportunity but yet they still have users they still have market share. And I think that's different, you know, when, when you're looking at, you know, which companies are likely to survive this, which coins are likely to survive it. Again, uh, the two most important things in blockchain are scarcity, which Bitcoin has, and then, you know, what we call network effects or the importance of users and users create value. Okay. That's what you're really getting with your networks. And if there is a network there, a community around it, then you can monetize. So those with the strongest communities are the ones that are going to be most likely to make it through. Yeah. And I kind of want to cycle back a little bit to a point you made. Mm -hmm. And I took a note here. You started at the dot-com. You remember the dot-com bubble. Um, and then in 2017, also before the crypto winter. Um, <laughs> a lot of people compare what we're seeing now because interest rates have gone up substantially because we've had rapid rampant inflation um and the only way to really tame that inflation is to raise interest rates where they were at operating at zero so you have technically a lot of zombie companies out there that and zombie projects that really don't generate any revenue but you know they're able to borrow at zero so they're able to run their operations um do you think a lot of what we're seeing now is reminiscent of that dot combo um i mean there are certain aspects of it that are similar but i also think that what's a little bit different now i think the dot-com bubble was much closer to the crypto winter of 2018 uh for several reasons and one is that when you're looking at bitcoin specifically and why i would be surprised if bitcoin fell 85 percent from its high um and again i'm you know i'm not offering financial yeah. advice, maybe that same caveat that everyone does so they're not suddenly sued 
Um, the differences that I see are that Bitcoin was still relatively unproven. That you also had a booming economy, a booming stock market, where people had other options for where they were going to put their money. Whereas now you see people who are looking at well, with inflation, they don't want their money just sitting there, but the stock market is dropping. So even though Bitcoin is struggling. When people see if it's down, you know, starts to drop below 20,000, there are enough people, I think, see that as a bargain who are still looking for another place to put their money, given that they're not comfortable with the stock market and they're not comfortable just keeping it in cash right now because of inflation. So I think that is different. The other issue is that there was significant concern at the time um, about regulation, regulatory uncertainty and what was going to happen in that space. We're now starting to see some regulatory clarity added there. You know, with uh, most recently with um, the proposed Responsible Financial Innovation Act, so people get some, you know, within our regulatory system, is this going to fall under the SEC or the CFTC? Is it functioning more like like a mining token that's going to appreciate value like a security, or is it more a usage token, like an in-game payment, um, like where it's going to function more like a commodity? And then provisions for things like uh, it's not going to be a taxable event if it's under $200. So you don't have to worry about if you're using you know, Bitcoin to, to pay for a cup of coffee, that every time you do that transaction, you're going to have to yeah. go ahead and you know, record your taxes. Otherwise, you know, you're going to you know, get in trouble with the IRS. Otherwise, then so you'll I have like 50,000 things on your taxes. You got to yeah, pay for call. Yeah, you got to exactly. that, that's And that's not practical. Exactly. So I think just, again, the fact that there there is more of a um, a maturity within this industry right now, uh, I think the um, you know the we in the, in the book that I wrote, I'm going to just segue a little bit here. Yeah. But one of our our case studies, successful case study, was the Chamber of Digital Commerce, which is the trade association for the blockchain industry, and um, they they're founder, Perry and Boring, was pushing for several years for national action plan for blockchain. And after three years, we clearly saw the influence of that within President Biden's executive order. And uh, not only did it talk about important things like, you know, maintain, promoting maintaining U.S. competitiveness and maintaining stability and avoiding systemic risk and incorporating digital assets into our overall regulatory system. Um, one of the big I think the part that, that really stood out to me was the focus on financial inclusion, because so many of the um, opponents to blockchain, digital asset, cryptocurrency industry are claiming that it's just the rich getting rich, it's, it's a scam, and then some of the, the middle classes, the marginalized class of society yeah. will go in and then lose their entire, lose everything on it. But the fact that the executive order emphasized the financial inclusion. That means people really see this has an opportunity for democratizing so many industries, for banking the unbanked, for really opening up this new world to anyone who can have a cell phone, uh, not only nationally, but, but internationally. And that's really exciting to see. So I think that for um, there are enough people who really understand this space now that yeah. um, I think we're going to see um I would be surprised. It's not not a guarantee, but I would see, be surprised if it block Bitcoin fell as much as it did. 
The other thing people have to realize as to why Bitcoin has fallen from its high. One is that you had China basically tell, at one time, you know, a couple of years ago, and you can, you see this, I wrote about this in my uh, in article I wrote about um, the Chinese blockchain industry several years ago. At one time, they controlled like 72% of Bitcoin mining. Well, then the Chinese government told the people of China, you need to sell your Bitcoin you know, by January 1st, or we're going to confiscate. So obviously, that caused this, this flood, this sell-off, increase yeah. in supply of Bitcoin. So that logically, you know, think about it, 72% was mined in China at one time. So that caused it to drop. Then as you have other blockchain projects, other tokens often have assets in Bitcoin, as they started to find that they were, um, they were decreasing value, they started to then sell their most valuable assets, which were Bitcoin, which had far more value than many of their own tokens. So that caused further downward pressure on Bitcoin. So, you know, in that sense, and then also people just at some point needing to, to take a profit to pay for, you know, other losses in other yeah. industries. I mean, it just, again, for people who really understand this industry, I think they're looking at this as, if anything, they're kind of excited about it. What, because they're seeing an opportunity to actually buy more. What do you make of the critique? And, and this is kind of coming off of a point you you made, but like, what do you make of the critique that like the price, for instance, of Bitcoin, it's got to be for other coins too, um, is that it's it's it can be manipulated because it's held the vast majority is held by you know a few people. Um, like, what what do you make of kind of that critique and how? Does that, you know, how can that issue kind of be resolved in the long run where really the whole, it, it, it trades, it's not like so volatile in that aspect. Yeah. You know, we, we wrote about in our book and uh, John and I, we, we believe we coined the term, the consensus paradox, which is that the larger this decentralized network grows, the more centralized it becomes. And you saw that with like you know, mining pools and, and many other aspects, the whales who control um, certain amounts of it. But what I will say is that the there's a difference between Bitcoin and many other coins in the sense that Bitcoin has scarcity. Yeah. And because of that scarcity, there's only 21 you know, million that will ever be made. Um, there's probably anywhere from estimated about 20% of the, you know, close to 19 million now that have been um, mined so far, which is interesting that the people, if you understand like ex exponential decay, you know, having each time how, you know, after if it, you know, it has every four years after 12 years, like 88%, right, 7.5% of all the mined Bitcoin will already be out there, but then that also causes the price to increase. Yeah. Um, but uh, apologize for digressing on that, that point just a little bit, but it's all good. because of that scarcity, as there is a demand, as more institutional money, and you look at the trillions of dollars of assets under management, as that is more and more of that starts to go into Bitcoin in small percentages, that's going to force a price to be stabilized there. Okay, and that is where um, that is something where, if anything, the more people who are allowed to get into it and incorporate, you know, Bitcoin into their IRAs or businesses that are um, 
if you're not comfortable with that, and it is risky and volatile, um, you can look at investing in the overall blockchain ecosystem. And I use the example of how, you know, when the dot-com crashed, uh, the one, I still had a, uh, a stock that was involved in fiber optics and it was acquired by a company called Corning because it was building out the, the original internet infrastructure yeah. based on fiber optics. So there are the same opportunities within the blockchain industry. You know, and we wrote um, an article called Block Stocks, another coin that we term investing in blockchain beyond Bitcoin, which creates opportunities for people to invest in real companies that are participating in this industry. So even when there is a downturn in the economy um, and their prices will drop, they may lose 40, 50, 60% of their value, but they're not going to lose 90, 95, yeah. 100% of their value, which happens with many of these tokens. Um, at the same time, though, you do have you know many tokens that don't have scarcity where their networks, um, their user bases are not growing. And those are the ones that, that you're seeing are, you know, running into difficulties right now, because again, it's not, there's no scarce, it's not an issue of scarcity. And when their network stops growing, their user base is stagnant, that's going to cause the downward pressure on their token value. One thing I want to touch on um, is regulation, because you are at the forefront of a lot of these regulatory practices and laws that go in. And you kind of have, you know, special kind of insight into it. And you were just at, what was it? The Ohio, um, it, it was like an Ohio blockchain summit, right? For lack of better terms. So yeah. uh, um, with a lot of, with a lot of like heavy hitters, I mean, you, you were there, um, other people in attendance were, you know, people like Channing Fry and Kevin O'Leary and Michael Saylor and whatnot. Um, so it's like a big deal. A lot of people are really focused on, legislation and regulation because how it's regulated is really going to determine what we see in the future of how yeah. not this is just traded but how people can access it yeah. um so like what were your key takeaways but then also like where do you expect regulation to go because that is really the million dollar question i mean th there's always been peaks and troughs with prices with how crypto is traded. That's just, you know, the name of the game. It's a follow last set because it's a new industry. Um, but regulation is going to play a big part into it. So what do you think about that? Okay. Um, yeah, just, okay. Just I'll give a little background and then also clarify just a couple, yeah. um, a, a little confusion surrounding the different conferences there. Um, the Chamber of Digital Commerce uh, is the, the National Trade Association, but they also realized several years ago that there were a lot of well-intentioned state and local legislators who um, wanted to promote innovation and entrepreneurship in, in the blockchain space, but they didn't really understand the technology. They didn't understand the terminology. They didn't understand a lot of the existing legal environment um, and laws that were currently in place on relevant issues like you know money transmitter laws, things like that. So they came out with a legislators toolkit for blockchain technology, which was designed to be used at the state level. Well, Texas, uh, which has a big focus in mining Bitcoin, um, they came out with a Texas edition of the legislators toolkit. And one of the members of the Texas Blockchain Council, who I first heard post about it, was a woman named Natalie Spolensky that we wrote about uh, in our book. She was, she was fantastic. She was one of the key people we interviewed on 
a company she founded called Learning Machine. Um, and they were acquired by Cleveland-based uh, Highland Credentials, Green, uh, Highland, Highland Technology and Relaying uh, Highland Credentials. Well, she got me in touch with Lee and I learned about what they did. And one of the great things about you know, emerging technology is we can all work together to make the pie bigger because then yeah. we all benefit. And I, you know, I live here in Northeast Ohio, but I work for um, a Boston-based company called Media Shower, and I became very active in the Boston Blockchain Association. So at the time, we had um, one of our state representatives, Warren Davidson uh, from Butler County, and Stephen Lynch uh, from Massachusetts were promoting federal blockchain legislation. And I thought, you know, these are two forward-thinking states. Um, they were kind of at the forefront of our technology. Uh, Ohio was one of the first states to allow um, crypto payments uh, for your taxes. Uh, it was a, a program under then uh, State Treasurer Josh Mandel. Um, so I thought Massachusetts and Ohio would be two logical next states yeah. for their own state-specific toolkits. So we already had the Boston Blockchain Association in place. So while we were putting together the Massachusetts toolkit to then be vetted and, and hosted by the what we call the BBA, Boston Blockchain Association, that gave me time to put together an Ohio Blockchain Advisory Council with leading you know, academics, legal experts, entrepreneurs, people involved in uh, diversity, equity, inclusion uh, within the state of Ohio, and then also getting Ohio X to act as a hosting organization. So we did the Massachusetts version first, and then the Ohio version hosted by Ohio X. Now, ironically, the two events that you're referring to were only five days apart. One was on a Wednesday, and then the other was on the following Monday and Tuesday. The Wednesday event was the Ohio GovTech Summit, uh, which was hosted by Ohio X in Columbus. And that first focused on government regulations surrounding technology at the state level. Then I went to DC to the DC Blockchain Summit, which was hosted by the Chamber of Digital Commerce. And that's where I had the opportunity to uh, you know, talk with Channing Fry, who you know we're still thankful for, for helping yeah. us in Northeast Ohio get that championship back in 2016. He had great things to say about Northeast Ohio, said it was you know, the favorite place he ever played people really embraced him there um and he was talking about um nfts non-fungible tokens for nba top shot uh, which ironically we wrote in our book about um, a company called axiom zen coming out with crypto kitties which was the first uh nft digital collectibles for cats and we left off our chapter as they had spun out in the dapper labs and we're looking at different use cases one of which was video clips of you know nba stars uh highlights of their their greatest shots greatest dunks yeah. etc and uh and it's great to hear you know channing and dc talking about that um but like like you said there were other um very uh you know prominent people uh involved um you know at that stage uh like you said kevin o'leary was there uh he spoke although he wasn't at this one uh mark cuban has participated in a uh, number of blockchain talks to the University of Pennsylvania's uh, Wharton School and their Cypher Accelerator. You had uh, Michael Saylor um, there, who's been, you know, a big, you know, micro strategy, you know, buying up Bitcoin, yeah. any chance they can get. But, you know, one of the things that's really important is to have a communication between business leaders, government leaders, and legislators. 
so that they can all be on the same page. There's this idea that you know regulators are the enemy, but they're not. In many instances, they just have historical precedents they have to follow. They work within existing legal frameworks. When you have a new technology, there are questions of interpretation. Um, and sometimes based on that, uh, for example, so far, you know, the SEC has often taken a, I say, a, a less favorable position than the CFTC, which under Christian Carlo, um, yeah. also known as Crypto Dad, had, uh, you know, had taken more favorable positions. But it wasn't because, you know, one is good and the other is bad. It's just that these are the, the frameworks I have to work in. These are the historical precedents, and they're trying to work through that. But the more you can benefit, you know, from that of getting this communication going between people um, and key stakeholders, that's what's going to lead to, you know, the best possible environment. We wrote in our book about uh, Jeremy Allaire, who's the, the founder of Circle. And Circle and Coinbase formed the Center Consortium, which led to the development of the USDC stablecoin, which is uh, clearly, in my opinion, the best stable coin. It is the most stable stable coin, the one I have the most confidence in. And it's because they didn't take this defiant oppositional approach. They went state to state to become the most regulated business in this industry. They received the first bit license from the New York Department of Financial Services. And we found that the companies that really try and work within the system, those are the ones that have the most success. And, you know, that's what what we found, you know, one of the points that I, I made, I had a great opportunity to speak on Tuesday up at Case Western Reserve. The Department of State um, has this group called the International Visitor Leadership Program. Okay. And it's business technology leaders um, from around the world uh, who work for leading companies within, uh, sometimes they work for governments, sometimes they work for companies like Meta and Google mm -hmm. or they report for Forbes. Uh, in places, you know, in, in South America, Europe, Africa, the Middle East. And I was privileged to have an opportunity to speak to them on blockchain. And I was telling them about some of the great blockchain projects we had going on here in Cleveland. And, you know, I mentioned, you know, the Blockland program. And then we have companies like uh, Champ Titles, which do, you know, managing car titles and the benefits, you know, not only to government and car owners, but the insurance yeah. industry. And companies like Actual, uh, which does you know healthcare credentialing in the blockchain space, but how their leaders were involved uh, with um, you know ensuring uh, important blockchain legislation was passed on issues. Uh, I know Shane McRae Bigelow from Champ Titles worked with um, uh, to ensure that we had you know clear legislation on the validity of electronic signatures and electronic contracts. Um, and you know how people like like Shane and Jeffrey Stern from Actual and many other leaders that we had in academia were involved in the Ohio Blockchain Advisory Council, yeah. working on our Ohio legislators' toolkit to make sure that we had the recommendations we came up with were going to make the biggest impact. And those included things like having, you know, uh, a blockchain working group or task force that didn't just research but actually pushed for you know, the implementation of these technologies that we created a, a safe harbor network, you know, where you are basically, you're still within a general, you know, the realm of regulations. It doesn't give you a, a free pass to do it. Yeah. But you have a certain um, freedoms that you don't have to worry about 
regulations until they're developed. So that may, maybe can eliminate capital requirements. So you don't have to worry about maybe losing your nonprofit status, issues like that. We wanted to you know, work to standardize the tax obligations, which I've already talked about, how every time a cryptocurrency is used, it's not necessarily a taxable event. Um, you know, working ways to have some uh, clarity and consistency in our money transmitter laws between state, which is, is a big challenge. And I think, uh, you know, perhaps one of the most important ones is to have, you know, a blockchain pilot project that people can point to that has the best chance of success. Because yeah. if you have this high visible project and then suddenly it fails, that can just really put a downturn on, on the entire industry. And especially given this environment where you're starting to see you know, a tightening of, of venture capital, it's really important that you know, when you plan out a blockchain project that you really understand the entire ecosystem, all the players involved and get everyone on the same page. And that goes for investors too. It's not just building mm-hmm. the project. Yeah. It's You want to know exactly what's going into it before you throw your money into it because as we're seeing, there's a lot of these fugazi types of things that are made just to make money. And that's why regulation is so important. It really tries to make sure people abide by certain guardrails. So you don't end up as a novice investor going in and making a wrong decision. There's something that you know I want to quickly touch on here before um, we go, because I know you're extremely busy. I saw yesterday Robinhood. Um, is now has now is worth less than their cash on hand. And they, so they have about $6.1 billion and they're worth, I think slightly under $6 billion market cap. Um, they, they got went heavy into Dogecoin. They really were the poster child for people coming in, just investing in whatever people were telling them to invest in yeah. random, random people. And a lot of that had to be with crypto with Dogecoin um, you know, obviously GameStop, AMC, those types of things, but um, you're really starting to see, I think, a lot of lessons learned from what's happened over the last, really since the pandemic started, when people really had nothing else to do. They threw money into a lot of these things, including crypto, where they ended up getting burned. And now, you know, I think regulators are really trying to step up, but you're seeing a lot of these companies that were associated with it. They're really starting to get hurt. It's not just Robinhood. It's Coinbase, as we already touched on. They are at an all-time low right now. And they just laid off 18% of their workforce. So, like, you're seeing, um, you know, a lot of these Celsius, which is probably going under. Like, yeah. it's it's a lot. It, it's The landscape is changing. And that's why, Evan, we wanted to have you on us, because there's a whole holistic approach people have to actually take to understand what crypto and Bitcoin is, I'm not pretending to be, you know, the most knowledgeable or in tune. And that's why we love having someone with your experience on because there's so many layers you have to take into account before you can not just make a project but make an investment in it. Mm-hmm. So no, no, that's an excellent summary. And, you know, what I would say is two lessons that, um, you know, we've always emphasized. And I will say my, my interest has always been more on the enterprise blockchain side, but you need to understand Bitcoin to understand the true potential of the technology. Uh, as again, I've been a contributor to, to Bitcoin Market Journal, uh, but one of the points that we have always emphasized, uh, it's a point that, that John Hargrave, a co-author, emphasizes is, you know, 
As scarcity creates value and users create value. So you need to be looking at those two issues there. Um, again, I mean, the warnings that he's put out, I mean, about, about Dogecoin, um, about if it sounds too good to be true, it probably, it probably is. is, which yeah. is what, you know, in Terra was the algorithmic stable coin was offering 20% you know, returns and people weren't even really sure what that, what that meant. But you know, about three weeks before it crashed, he had put out you know, a detailed analysis um, explaining the rationale behind it. Um, you will hear a lot of people that, you know, a lot of people like to uh, throw darts, or I'd say shoot an arrow, and then wherever it lands, draw a circle around it. And there'll be yeah. people that are the same people now are saying, oh, you know, Bitcoin's going to hit, you know, 10,000. And six months ago, they were saying Bitcoin's going to hit 500,000. Um, Ask them to explain you know, what they're basing that on, okay? And again, this is an emerging industry. Many people are testing and developing many metrics. Um, but, you know, if they're just saying, well, our models show, our analysis shows, that it probably means just a wild guess, okay? Yeah. Forecast often, uh, forecast loudly, and then, you know, point to the ones that you got right. But... You know, really, when people are giving explanations, again, are these somehow related to users, okay? Is it somehow related to some sort of, you know, performance that you're seeing based on, on users or scarcity? Those are the metrics that are going to be relevant. Uh, don't try and time the market, you know, because, again, you only know in hindsight what was actually a good price, okay? Look for opportunities. Again, if you're going to invest small amounts, Steady drip investing, you know, over time, that's going to be your best, um, your best bet for building, you know, long-term wealth. And again, you know, look at the, but people generally do the opposite. You know, when everything's follow moving, the crowd, that's what everyone's doing. Let's follow the crowd. Out, they're they're going to jump in when it's high, and then they're going to panic and be afraid to go in when it's low. But also at the same time, no one knows when it's going to end. You know, you could chasing your losses is you know, a really bad thing. And I can remember with the dot-economy when, you know, it fell the the NASDAQ, which was a high of like maybe 5,100, when it hit around 3,500, lost 30% of its value. People thought it's a great time to buy more. And then when it hit 2,500, lost 50% of its value. Great time to buy more. And then it got down around 15. Great time to buy more. And then it went down to around 1,300 and stayed there. Uh, for a really, really long time. And then a lot of people, their bills came due. And, you know, so you can't, you, you know, you don't really know for sure. So again, you know, when you're investing uh, only money that you don't need to pay your bills, that you don't need to uh, ideally touch for a long time. Uh, so you can you know, ride this out. And again, make sure that there is, you know, real, real value there. Because even when you know people took a lot of the ideas in the dot economy of, well, I'll I'll buy like ten different internet stocks and one of them is bound to be you know the next big success, and then I'll make up for the loss of the others. And yet all ten of them weren't. Okay. Yeah. And kind of the same thing here, where you know a lot of people are diversifying amongst similar coins with no value, and that's not, you know, that's not a safe bet either. But you know, diversify. Look at the, the the broader blockchain ecosystem. You know, companies that make the hardware, the software, 
that support it, the companies that own the most patents, you know, with blockchain technology, uh, the ones that specialize in, in consulting, uh, you know, offering consulting services in that space. Those are all different ways that you can get involved and still benefit during the downturns because, you know, the, the cryptocurrencies, you know, many of them will come and go with the technology and its disruptive potential uh, is here to stay, but yet there are still challenges. Scalability is still a challenge. Interoperability is a challenge. Um, the companies that can do those and can really add cost efficiencies from disintermediation, those are the companies that you need to be looking at. Well said. Well said. Evan, where can our listeners find all your content? Between your book and everything. Yeah. Um, our book, uh, Blockchain Success Stories, Case Studies from the Leading Edge of Business, can be found on um, Amazon. It's also available uh, in audiobook version, uh, which that was, uh, if you ever have an opportunity to do an audiobook, uh, it's a, a fantastic experience. You, you learn so much about how, you know, what you communicate uh, with your voice. Um, you can find the Ohio Toolkit uh, for Legislators Toolkit for Blockchain Technology on the Ohio X website. Um, my name, uh, Evan Karnopakis, E-V-A-N-K-A-R-N-O-U-P-A-K-I-S. I have an author page at Bitcoin Market Journal. Um, I highly recommend uh, subscribing to Bitcoin Market Journal. It comes daily Monday through Friday. Um, uh, but it's it's a short, maybe you know, two to three minute read each day. It does a nice job of giving you the latest information in the blockchain industry, uh, the crypto markets, how it compares with the traditional financial markets, and then you know, usually uh, any other um, relevant information. And uh, I would say in the future, uh, pay some close attention to Avocado Technologies uh, and see what uh, information they're going to be coming out with. Uh, you'll see more of that towards the end of the summer. That That is, those are all great announcements right there. We've got fo- follow up with Evan on any, you know, topics. So go ahead, read, you know, his content. Um, I'll post that in the description as well. Avocado Technologies, uh, they are really going to, you know, represent a lot of, you know, good good faith investing so really looking out for people that are really trying to invest the right way and so you'll hear more about that as time goes on but evan uh really excited to have you thank you so much for your time uh i feel like this is like i said at the very top this is a great time to do this we've been talking about doing this for a while um but it's great when everything is you know going up and things are looking fine and there's no panic this is really a time to do it when people are really at a crossroads mentally of like, Oh shoot, you know, looking at this and this is looking bleak and whatnot. So your expertise comes in at handy at a great time. And um, we'll post this later tonight. And Evan, thank you. You're welcome. Carter. All right, everyone. We will see you in two weeks.